is, well, it's afternoon almost, isn't it? It's probably technically the afternoon. I, my rule of thumb in these kind of situations is that uh, if you've not had your lunch yet, it's probably the morning. Um, so, but it's, uh, it's really good to be here with you. As uh, Jeff said earlier on, it's my first time to be here in, uh, in this building and with you in this fellowship. And I want to thank him and the other elders for uh, the invitation and for the, the warm welcome that they've, they've given to me uh, to be among you. What I want to talk about over the three, the three Sundays that we uh, have this time together, uh, I, want to, I want to try to do something that's maybe, maybe uh, really impossible, but I'm going to have a, an attempt at it anyway, and we're going to try to cover 1 Peter. There are five chapters in 1 Peter. We've got three Sundays, so uh, obviously that's really not going to work uh, chapter by chapter. But what I want to try to do over uh, the three Sundays that we have is to give you a sense of the message and the significance of this book, because I think it is a very relevant book for where we find ourselves, the moment that we find ourselves in now. So we're going to begin by reading. I'll say a few words of introduction to the, to the letter a little, uh, in a moment or two, but we're going to begin by reading, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to read a, a, a fair bit of the first couple of chapters. Begin at chapter one, I'll be reading right through part, part way into chapter two. So I'm reading from the NIV, um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 
Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe... This stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And may God bless his word and uh, lead us as we um, work through some of these verses together. The title I'd like to write over the, the letter of First Peter uh, and I hope Peter wouldn't mind that I, that I do this, is faithful exiles. I think that's what this is essentially about. Um, you'll notice that the word exiles uh, is used very early on in the first couple of lines. And it, the theme of exile is actually a very significant theme across Scripture uh, through the New Testament. It's a very significant theme. Um, you think maybe particularly of the exile of the people of Judah who are sent off to Babylon. And they spend those years in Babylon. Eventually, Babylon is overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And that exile continues until they eventually get to return and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But that period of exile uh, is, is a time that provides the background a considerable, a considerable amount of, of our Old Testament. You have prophets who are warning about it. Um, you have prophets who are prophesying beyond it. You have the story of Daniel and his friends who live in the middle of that exile. And I think this idea of exile, uh, which 
flows on actually into, into this letter that Peter has written, I think it's particularly relevant to us. Now, let me say something about the exile of, of Peter's readers, first of all. Um, you'll notice he says, you're God's elect, exiles scattered throughout, and then he mentions various Roman provinces. These are scattered believers. And I would suggest that uh, in all likelihood, we need to understand their exile in two ways. One is a literal exile. Some of the, the scholars reckon that these scattered believers who are living in different parts of the Roman Empire have actually, actually been scattered to some of the far-flung provinces in order to help establish Roman colonies. They've been sent away from Rome. Uh, they're, they're living in places that they do not belong. So there's a sense in which they are literal exiles. They're scattered in these uh, various Roman provinces uh, and, uh, and far from home. But there's also a sense, and this is where it connects with us, uh, the sense in which they are spiritual exiles. And it becomes clear as you work your way through the letter that they're spiritual exiles because they're living in a culture where they're not fully at home. So they're literal exiles because they're living in a physical environment where they're not fully at home, but they're spiritual exiles because they're living in a spiritual environment where they're not, they're not fully at home. Now, we still have literal exiles and spirit, the, the concept of spiritual exile uh, in, in our world today. Um, there are almost 300 million people uh, who would be described as international migrants, people who've traveled to, to, to live in other parts of the world. There are almost 100 million displaced people in our world today. You think of famine, you think of war, you think of drought, you think of persecution, all reasons why people end up displaced. But while that is a, a hugely significant issue, and if we had more time, uh, we could maybe talk more about that, but our focus over these next three Sundays is on spiritual exile. To be in spiritual exile means that you have an ultimate allegiance to a different authority. To be a spiritual exile means that you have differences in your values and lifestyle from the culture that's around you. And you can see that for all the, the challenges of literal exile that these, readers, these first readers of Peter's letter would have experienced, they're also experiencing that sense of disjunction. They don't fully belong in the spiritual climate. There are aspects of their values, aspects of how they live, and people look at it and think, well, that is strange. Why are you different? Why do you not do the things that we do? And I think you can probably begin to see very easily how relevant these kind of ideas are uh, to the 21st century church. In probably what is the lifetime of many of us in, in this room, just a few decades, we've gone from a situation in this part of the world where the church was generally well regarded, it provided the backbone and reference point for many of the values that were, that were shared in the culture, even though maybe not everybody lived by them, but they were at least acknowledged. And we've gone from that, and we've gone probably to a stage where um, at best the church is regarded by many people as trivial, well, useful in some ways for food banks and, and, and so on, and that shouldn't be, uh, we, we shouldn't minimize that. But in many other ways, regarded as somewhat irrelevant. And even more than that, 
I think that some people would say the church is not simply something that's irrelevant or odd, but it's something that is oppressive or actually dangerous. And so we find ourselves, I don't think we find ourselves in the West uh, living in, in, in uh, persecution in the sense that our brothers and sisters in many other parts of the world do, but I think increasingly we need to come to terms with the reality that we are spiritual exiles. And it seems to me that one of the challenges of the church in Northern Ireland, if I can put it like this, is that some of us need to realize that we are no longer living in Jerusalem, but we're living in Babylon. In Jerusalem, on a Sunday morning, and I'm using that word figuratively, but Jerusalem, on a Sunday morning, everybody goes to church with their Bible in their hand. In Babylon on a Sunday morning, some people are out for a jog, some people are at the park, some people can't wait till the shops open so they can get in and do their, do their weekly shopping and spend all their money. There's a difference between being in Jerusalem and being Babylon. There are far more profound differences than that, but those are just simple little things that you can see that demonstrate to us that our culture has changed. And we need to learn what it means to live as faithful exiles. And that's where this letter comes in. Now, there's lots of other biblical teaching that, that uh, you could refer to on the subject, but I think this letter speaks right into this kind of context. Um, and I want to, I want to uh, obviously divide it into three sections because we've got three Sundays. And uh, there's, there, there's a, a couple of little pointers which I think are helpful in, in allowing us to divide this up a little bit. If you, if you go back to uh, your, your Bible, and it's wonderful to see so many people with Bibles in front of them. If you go back to your Bible and you notice chapter 2, verse 11, you'll notice the expression, if you've got an NIV, uh, Peter says, dear friends. If you're reading from the ESV or maybe another translation, we'll say, beloved. Dear friends, verse 11 in the NIV, I urge you as foreigners to, and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Go a little bit further, go all the way over to chapter 4, and this time chapter 4, verse 12. And you notice that the same, the same expression is used, beloved or dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And I want to suggest that those couple of verses, chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 12, that begin with the word dear friends, they're like little hinge points where there's a little change. We move into a different section of, of the letter. And I think they allow us to divide the letter into three main parts. Now, the parts are not watertight, and you'll see that by the end of the three weeks, but at least helpful in terms of an overview. And the first section that we're going to try to run through very quickly in the next 15 minutes or, or so, am I allowed to say or so? And I'll try to be, you know, I realize that you've got lunches waiting for you, uh, but or so just means that it, you'll not, you'll not kind of, uh, you know, throw me out if, if it's half past or there's not an ejection button or something. Or the Baptist, there, yeah, I was just going to say that. I just realized that the trap door will open and I assume that I'm assuming there's no water in it. So I would just have a very, I would have a very hard fall. Um, but the, fir the first section, chapter 1, verse 3, once the couple of, once the couple of verses of introduction uh, are done, chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 10, what I want to suggest there is what Peter's talking about is our identity as faithful exiles, our identity as faithful exiles. Then the middle section, which we look at next Sunday, is chapter 2, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 11, 
And I'm gonna suggest that the emphasis there is on witness. Now, there's a lot about suffering as well, but the emphasis that, I'm going to, that I want us to see next week is witness. So our identity is faithful exiles, our witness is faithful exiles, and then from chapter 4, verse 12, down to the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 14, our suffering as faithful exiles. Now, the theme of suffering runs throughout, uh, but it, we're going to have a particular focus on it in, in that last section. So faithful exiles, our identity, our witness, and our suffering. And I think you can see, just even with those three headings, you can see how relevant this can be to us and to the wider church in the Western world. So we begin by thinking a little bit about our identity. Now, from a human perspective, um, the word scattered is not very promising. So uh, when he says, when Peter says in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, uh, he describes them as exiles who are scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Well, it's not a very promising start. These are people who are scattered. They're, they're separated from each other. And yet, there's a tremendous contrast. Because while from a human perspective, they are exiles who are scattered, from God's perspective, they are God's elect, God's chosen people. So from a human perspective, well, these are just people scattered around the far-flung areas of the Roman Empire. From God's perspective, a remarkable identity. And I want to try to describe the identity that we have as the people of God by picking out three words. And the first one is the word hope, which is a significant theme from verse 3 down to verse 9. Uh, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy, his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. This is what the gospel has brought. These people and us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, isn't it true that our physical birth brings us into all kinds of circumstances. Um, you think, for example, of a child who was born, for example, two weeks ago in Gaza. The circumstances into which that child was born. You think in contrast with, contrast, for example, and, and take King Charles. When he was born, he was born into a particular family and a particular set of circumstances and a particular destiny. We're all born into something. And here Peter is saying that we have been born again into something. And what we've been born again into is this remarkable hope that we have. And he says that they've got a hope in verse 3 They've got a future in verse 4. Some of you maybe pick up the, the uh, echo there from uh, the, the letter to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29. But there's a hope and there's a future. And I think you probably realize that when the New Testament talks about hope, it's not the hope of a naive football fan at the start of the season. And I say this as someone who has followed Everton uh, for, for quite a number of years. And I still remember about three years ago when we had uh, Ancelotti. We, we actually had won the league uh, about the middle of September. Now, of course, the, the league doesn't end in the middle of September. 
But there's always that hope, isn't there? You know, if you're, if you're whatever, whatever your team might be. This is not the naive hope of a football fan. This is hope that is based on a solid promise. It's the promise of a coming salvation. And that's referred to in several verses in the section. It's a salvation that's still future, but yet it's so real that they can taste it now. And it can be traced all the way back to the ministry of the Old Testament prophets who knew that something wonderful was coming but couldn't figure out the details. And it is secured for us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And although these people were suffering, that was the reality that they had in verse, verse 6, for a little while suffering grief and all kinds of trials, yet because of the hope that they had, they could rejoice greatly because of what was waiting for them in the future. So that's the first part of their identity, is these are people of hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God has brought them and has brought us into this, uh, this hope of a salvation which was promised and which has been guaranteed through Jesus. That's the first word. The second word I want you to notice is the word holiness. And you see the emphasis here uh, from verse 13 to verse 15. Uh, Paul writes about having minds that are alert or having, uh, it, it's an allusion, uh, hidden a little bit in some of the English translations, it's an allusion to the feast of the Passover back in the book of Exodus, where people were ready for the road, they were to have their minds alert, fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he says, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Now, isn't it interesting that in our, in, in our way of speaking, uh, if you're speaking to people in, in your workplace, if someone talks about holy or holiness or describes you as a, as a holy Jew, they don't, mean it as a, they don't mean it as a compliment. Or they say, well, he's a, he or she is a holier than thou. They, they don't mean it as a compliment. And, and it can be somewhat negative. Uh, in, in our, in our uh, associations. But holiness basically is about having a changed life, a life that is different from how we've lived before. And for the people that Peter is writing to, this holiness of life, being set apart to belong to God, having their lives changed, was something that would not be understood by the culture around them. Now, holiness is in the Old Testament. Here it is in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was often a question of following a set of rules. And some of those rules were very complex. We could almost, we're not going to do this, but we could almost have a little quiz about uh, lunch. And uh, we could say, well, if you were living under Leviticus uh, chapter 11, under the regulations of Leviticus chapter 11, and you wanted to be holy, according to the way Leviticus 11 talks about it, with the food laws, well, would you be okay with having camel for lunch? Answer, no, it's not clean. Well, what about an eagle? If you managed to catch an eagle, could you, you know, have eagle fillet? Well, no, again, you couldn't. You'll be relieved to know that you can eat grasshoppers. That's, that's fine. Uh, and also you could have fish with fins and scales, but not lots of the other things that, that crawl around in the, at, the, at the bottom of the sea. Quite a complex thing. There's obviously a lot more to it than that, but quite a, quite a complex thing to do with those regulations that you followed. Jesus shifts the emphasis. 
Now, of course, the Old Testament is also interested in the heart. Clearly it is. But Jesus shifts the emphasis very clearly to our hearts. And he makes it clear that holiness is not something that is defined by by following a, a set of external regulations. Holiness has to do with what's inside of us. He says it is what comes from within us that determines whether or not we're clean or unclean. Now, both Old Testament and New Testament, with their different ways of talking about holiness, in both cases, there is a common starting point. And you'll notice it in verse 16. It is written, says Peter, be holy as I am holy. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. The holiness of God is the starting point of our holiness. And you think of the experience of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, where he describes his call into the prophetic ministry. And there he is in the temple, and he sees the glorious holiness of God. And those amazing creatures who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's the holiness of God that makes Isaiah realize his own lack of holiness and to call out, woe is me, for I am undone. And of course, graciously, God provides cleansing from, for, for him from, from his sin. But that's the starting point, is this holiness, a key part of our identity as followers of the Lord Jesus, as faithful exiles. Now, Peter goes on to reinforce this. He talks about the great cost of redemption in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Uh, not, with, not with perishable things like silver or gold. It's not like somebody turned up one day and said, well, I can see that uh, you're, you know, you're in slavery to sin. I can see that you've got a problem here because you're under condemnation. Tell you what, I'll give you a lot of money and that will buy you out of that. doesn't work like that. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And again, he underlines this call to holiness at the start of chapter 2. Get rid of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and do all that. Get rid of that and crave pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word, so that you can grow up in your salvation. So we're people of hope, been born again into a living hope, even though life may be difficult. There's various kinds of trials that Peter talks about. We're people of holiness, called to be holy as God is holy. And the third word that I want to use, just as I bring this towards an end, is the word honor. And, and I, wanted, I wanted you to skip down to really chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and you see how Peter describes them. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And one of the things that you need to realize about the terms that Peter uses is that they're drawn from the Old Testament. These were promises given to the people of God in the Old Testament, a destiny that was offered to them. But now it is applied to largely Gentile 
in this case, followers of Jesus. The promises that God made, even the promise of a royal priesthood in Exodus 19, it is these Gentile followers of Jesus who are dignified by, given, by being given these titles, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special treasured possession. You weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what I, could, what I would write over that is nobodies have become somebodies. And you think back to what we said about the scattered exiles, and yet they were God's chosen. Well, here are people who once were not a people, but now they are the people of God. There's this great reversal that's happened. And I think when, he, when Peter talks, uh, as he does just in the, in, the, in the previous few verses, when he talks about the Lord Jesus, I think you see a picture of what it means for someone who's rejected to become someone of great value. Uh, Jesus is described as the, uh, as the living stone. He's described as the cornerstone. And you notice verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the leaders of the people rejected Jesus. And yet God said, you know what? He's the cornerstone. He's the one around whom I'm going to build this spiritual temple. And the people who come to follow him, these faithful exiles, they may be disregarded by the world, by their culture, but yet in God's estimation, they are valued and treasured. Let me tell you a story. It's about mugs, okay? The things that you drink out of. I don't mean, you know, things that you drink out of. In our house, and it may be true in your house as well, we have a cupboard where we keep our mugs. And, uh, you know, just to put it very simply, there are just too many mugs. And, uh, you know, when it's time to... <laughs> I see people, somebody's getting a nudge here. Uh, when you empty the dishwasher, you know that thing? You empty the dishwasher and you think, how do we get so many mugs? How, where, are we, where are we going to put them? And, and the, pro the problem in our house, the problem is, is uh, slightly exacerbated because my wife and I have different philosophies of mugs. Um, her, her philosophy is, well, um, you know, if you, have, if you have two or three friends come over for a cup of tea or coffee, it's nice to have matching mugs. And so we've got ones with, like, poppies on them, quite a lot of those. My philosophy of mugs is, is that <clears throat> over time, I've, I've collected a little sort of collection of random mugs, but they, they mean things. So I have a really nice one that's a, a nice pottery one that I got the first time I was in Belgrade a few years ago. Um, I, I have one that my, my daughter uh, painted when she was a little girl and she was doing a porcelain painting class. She painted it for me with an Everton crest on it, believe it or not. Um, and I have, you know, another, another one with, with it's a, it's a, it, it has got Switzerland on it and I lived in Switzerland for 17 years. And, um, so there's, a, there's, there's just a, a little collection there that they're very random, but they mean something. So a number of years ago when, uh, I think we, we, just moved, we just had moved house and we were trying to kind of get this thing sorted out a little bit and decided we'd get rid of a few of our mugs. And uh, we, well, um, we sent some of them off to a um, secondhand, a charity shop, 
we sent some of them off to a charity shop. It was obviously my wife who decided the ones that were going to go. And probably that was a wise thing to do, because if she'd said to me, everyone, well, can I send this one away? I would have found a reason to say no. So she, she, she wisely sent them away. But then I discovered, I, I realized some of the ones that she'd sent off to the charity shop. I thought, oh, no, can't send that. So I actually got into my car, and I drove. <laughs> yeah, I did. I drove to the charity shop, and I bought back a couple of the mugs. Now, I know you think I'm gonna, this is a great illustration of redemption, and yeah, it probably is, but that's not my point. Charity shops, where people, people get rid of their old junk, basically, don't they, that they don't have room for in their cupboards, or they don't like it anymore, and yet other people will go in there and they'll buy it. One person's junk is another person's treasure. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. People outside might think you're odd, they might think you're oppressive, they might think the church is dangerous and all those kinds of things. God's treasured possession. It's our identity. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.